Hello and welcome to another episode of Is This Just Fantasy? I'm your host, Geordie Bailey. And I'm the man just looking for a little piece of glory, Duncan Nickel. Duncan, that's what podcasting is all about. Glory, girls and gold. I think, anyway, that's what I was told. That's why we got into it. Yeah, everyone knows Duncan. Podcasters, absolute chick magnets. Hey, we attract all kinds of wonderful people. And how do we, <laughs> when we attract them, where do we send them, Duncan? Well, they can reach out to us at isthisjustfantasypodcast at gmail.com or at our Instagram at isthisjustfantasypodcast. Yes, exactly. Today, we're here to talk about the book Bloody Rose, a follow-up to Nicholas Eames's Kings of the Wild. We have a very special relationship to this book, don't we, Duncan? Oh, we do indeed. Please, everyone, go out and check out our last episode where we talked about Kings of the Wild. But not only that, we talked to Nicholas Eames himself. He was a very nice man, gave us so much of his time and is. I'm sure he still is a very nice man. I I, I don't doubt it. Unless we've ruined him. Unless in our conversation he became embittered with the world and became a recluse. But I find it unlikely. Either way, go and check that episode out unless you already have. In which case, keep listening to this one. Don't. Don't touch that dial. So, Duncan, let's talk about this book. I had a really good time reading it. I did too. This was a good book. It was. Do you think it's a good sequel to Kings of the Wild? Ah, now that's a more difficult question. It is a more difficult question. And it's a big challenge when writing um, the follow-up to a really successful and enjoyable book like Kings of the Wild. Bloody Rose is different to Kings of the Wild. Mm. Kings of the Wild struck a particular balance between sort of the drama and the comedy. Uh, and I'm not necessarily saying it was a good balance, but it's also a very particular balance. This book also balances those two elements, but I think this, and I think it balances them both very well again, but yeah. it does tip the scales slightly the more towards the drama yeah. than the comedy compared to the first book. Uh, I'm going to make a statement, Geordie. I think Bloody Rose is a superior book to Kings of the Wild. Okay. But on my... I'm, I'm rereading them both uh, for this book club, and I think on these rereads, I had more fun uh, rereading Kings of the Wild, whereas mm. I walked away kind of more impressed with Bloody Rose. I can definitely see why. And it makes sense. You know, we I just spoke about the ratio of fun adventure and comedy to serious dramatic stuff um, is different. It makes sense you'd have more fun with Kings of the Wild. I think that I still prefer Kings of the Wild as a book as a whole, personally. I think um, it maybe it's just to my preferences. I think it's a more, it's a neater package. But let's get more into the details of that. You're right to say that Bloody Rose is quite a different book. And that's not just because of uh, the different tone the book takes. It's also because the perspective in the book changes quite a lot. This is such a clever decision on the path of Nicholas Ames. So we get essentially a completely new cast of main characters Mm -hmm. and a drastically different perspective in our POV character. Absolutely. Uh, The first book, Kings of the Wild, is all about these sort of washed up rock stars Looking mm-hmm. back on the glory days, trying to reclaim it, these old middle-aged men going out for one more adventure. Mm-hmm. Whereas this book is all about the young, up-and-coming band trying to carve out their niche, trying to get out of the shadow of those who came before. 
Exactly. It's such a good idea to do this. It is a good idea. It also presents a serious challenge to the previous book. Because Tam, our new POV character, is so different from Clay. Clay is this slightly embittered, jaded, older man. And Tam is a 16-year-old girl. They really couldn't be much more different. Tam begins her story extremely earnest and ends it quite a bit more jaded, whereas Clay starts the story pretty much on the jaded side, and by the end of the book, is like a true believer. Like, is full, is, is way more, in, is, well, maybe not way more. He ends the book invigorated and believing, basically, that he and his friends can do anything. So, are you saying that you don't like this decision? Would you like to have no. seen Clay back? No, I think keeping Clay and the rest of the band at arm's length is absolutely the right choice for the story. And at the point, by the way, this is going to be a full spoilers review. So before we go any further, I think it's high time that we give a bit more of our consensus on what we think of a book, whether we think people should read it, and um, before we go any further, you know? Oh, so Duncan, to a should people read this book and why? You should read this book. This is a good book. Um, it is, I think, an excellent continuation of what Kings of the Wild did. Mm-hmm. I recommend this book to the, in the sense that I recommend... I don't actually recommend this book, actually. No, don't feel oh. that differently. I don't recommend Bloody Rose. I recommend Kings of the Wild. And I am confident that anyone who picks up Kings of the Wild will... Of their own volition, pick up Bloody Rose. I will go further than that and say that, yes, people should pick up Kings of the Wild. There aren't many fans of fantasy who I wouldn't really recommend it to. I think it's super accessible. There are lots of people who it won't vibe with, but you should definitely give it a go nonetheless, just in case you are. That being said, I think there is a certain type of fantasy fan who would bounce off Kings of the Wild this book uh, would really suit them down to the ground. Because there are things in Kings of the Wild which, you know, I thought like, you know, I feel like this could have been given further thought. I think the first book, for example, paid lip service to the fact that monsters are basically people too. That it's wrong to do these things, like put them in arenas and hunt them. And whilst it's sort of said, this is bad, it was more of a tell, but don't actually show that. Don't, it didn't really explore it to the extent that I wanted it to. But that becomes like a central theme of this book. It really satisfied my desi- the desire I had in the first book to see that idea explored. And that was a big perk of this book. It also includes like way more central focused female characters. The first book was understandably masculine dominated because Nicholas, as Nick told us himself, you know, it's based off of these old school bands who are overwhelmingly male focused. So that kind of made a lot of sense. But this book is a sort of fresher take. It's about newer, more modern bands in the most literal sense. And therefore, it's a lot much more feminine book. It's, it's a, it actually contains like a central romance, which is a lesbian romance. Lots of big thumbs up from me. See, now I'm very confused then, because that seems like a lot of positive this book has over its predecessor, but you'd still come out on Kings of the Wild as the better book? 
Yes, and we'll get into that after I lift up the spoiler wagon. Go back to our previous episode or pick up Kings of the Wild. We will now be pressing on into the wilds of spoilers. Are they gone? I'd hope so. Duncan, are they gone? Come on, Dordie, then explain it to us because I'm perplexed. This book, I think, has so much more strength in its characterization. I think it's exploration of the setting in particular. The world building in this book is just, I can't, I would say it's outright. You know, with the first book, it was the background, it facilitated the narrative. This, the world in this book is intertwined with the character growth. It's intertwined with the quest they go on. It's brilliant world building. I think that the fact that the first book was lighter on stuff like that kind of played to its strengths. I think it was kind of to um, to the advantage of the book that you had things like referring back to previous adventures and saying, oh, you remember when we did this? The fact that you could sort of fill up that space with your own imagination. I kind of feel like that was, um, you know, that was superior in its own small way. There are parts of this book which I feel like were explored to an extent that I didn't really need them explored. For example, if this were Kings of the Wild, if if the band Fable were, you know, 20 years down the line, they could have referred back to Brune's past and said, remember when Brune didn't have control of his powers, when he was a bear instead of a wolf, and then move on and to explore different aspects of his personality? Personally, I kind of, um, for, so to take Brune as an example, I kind of felt like Brune's whole storyline uh, was resolved a bit too early in the book. He essentially has this like side quest they go on and his, he achieves emotional catharsis over the death of his mother and secures his own identity. And then for the rest of the book, he's kind of already sorted out his baggage. Like, Kura, I think it's Kura, um, Kura still has stuff to work through, Rose still has stuff to work through, and and Tam also has stuff to work through, but Bruce kind of done. He, he finished his, he's, he did his arc, it's over now. It's almost as if um, Moog had found the cure to the rot in the first book um, before they'd entered the heart world. Well, I feel like what you're, you're almost saying is... Moog did find the cure to the rot halfway through the book, which is true. Like, he had achieved that catharsis. And I'm trying to get into my head why I feel like Brune's story is a little different. My approach uh, to Brune, I think, is not just that his sort of side quest gets dealt with early. It's that I don't think he gets much emotional development past that point. That's right. And I don't think he really helps any of the other party members um, work through their own kind of emotional tales he's just sort of there i think that's different with moog moog after he gets his sort of side quest resolved i still feel like he's helping clay and helping other characters work through their stuff whereas brune really does feel like he kind of takes a step back to the point to the actual point actually so this was a reread already um when i picked up this book i couldn't remember his name i actually looked at the cover when i went to do this reread and went What's that? Yeah, Rose, uh, Free Cloud, yeah, I remember, yeah, that must be Tam. Oh, that's the Ink Witch, can't quite remember her name. And I looked at Brune and I went, oh, isn't that Roderick? I feel like that, that guy's called Roderick. Mm. Like, 
he just doesn't leave as much of an impression on me. Whereas that didn't happen with any of the characters in the first book. Something which I felt like was really thematically strong throughout this book is that it's pretty obvious why the book has its name, you know? We're playing Tam is our witness to the character of Rose. Rose is the central figure of this book. And much like Clay bearing witness to Gabe's story, Tam is bearing witness to Rose's story. Like, she is a background character. She's literally supposed to be the bard. She has to bear witness. She shouldn't interact. I think, to me, this is, and I really hope he carries it forward, this is so much kind of synonymous in my head with uh, Nicholas M's style. Sure. You know, you place the obvious main character to the side, Mm -hmm. and I think it helps lend them, firstly, a little bit of extra mystery, and it also, for me just gives me the sense throughout the entire novel of, oh, they can die. They're not my POV. They could definitely die now. That's true. That's true. I, mean, <laughs> I, 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 was, really I, I told that. everyone in the previous episode, I was sure, down to my bones, that um, Gabe wasn't going to make it through the last book. I was actually... I mean, I have, over the past weekend, I've been re-listening to Kings of the Wild because I was like, I really felt a hunger to just experience it again. And I, I didn't even realise... That there was this big portion of foreshadowing um, in the um, in the first book, where when they visit this island for the council with uh, Last Leaf, they talk about how there was this thing summoned to the final battle of the Dominion called an Infernal, and about how the king, like the rebel leader, managed to take him down, but he had to, he was so powerful that he had to die with it, and his sons had to like had to lead on without him. And I was like, oh, wow, so you're setting up the fact that Gabe should die against the Infernal, that it's unreasonable for him to survive. And yet he does. So, you know, that setup was being laid in place to, 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 in order for our expectations to be shattered when Gabe made it through, when he survived, when he got to see his daughter again. I think you've summarised there so succinctly your feelings on Bloody Rose that even in its book club session... You're praising Kings of the Wild. Look, I just I just prefer one book over the other. It doesn't really... I mean, I still love this book a lot. Like, I had a really great time reading it. I enjoyed all the action scenes. I enjoyed the scenes where people were talking. I might not have found it quite as funny. But I also thought, like, yeah, I like the changes you've made to this story. I like the fact that you have these very different POVs. And whilst I don't think Tam is as good a POV as, as, as Clay, uh, I still think she's a good POV. I like her relationship with, with Kura in that it's like, oh, maybe you shouldn't be getting into this relationship, but that might just be my personal reasons, because I'm like, we've all had Kuras in our lives where we were like, here's a very hurt person. I could definitely help her. Um, for sure, this is a healthy thing to want. Oh, I like that self-awareness. I really enjoyed Tam in this book, and I think uh, what she kind of does, I'm going to say what this character does mm-hmm. better than Clay is that I think because Tam's coming to all the band fresh. So Tam's getting to know everyone, whereas Clay... That's true. He already knew everyone. Um, and although he was getting to know them, mm-hmm. like, afresh, like, getting to know them 20 years on, I still found the the blank state that uh, Tam had and not knowing the history and the mm-hmm. backstory of the characters gave a much more kind of natural yes. kind of progression to and learning about the them. fact that she has to unpack and see past their facades to see who they really are is thematically poignant. 
because this book is a oh yeah to be like the bard and to like actually tell their story uh we talked about Rune's side quest earlier i love the section following that where tam's trying to like write the song to kind of summarize that that side quest and she's like throwing out like potential names to kind of get at the heart Mm. of what kind of happened what i did appreciate is that i never felt any of the dynamics in bloody rose were simply a regurgitation of what we saw in kings of the wild Everyone was new. Everyone was kind of different. I agree. Yeah, you're right. They all are pr- really different. And I think that is um to the strength of this book. Like, there's no character like Kura in the first book. And even Roderick, who is this comedic member of the band, and according to Nick at least, should kind of take the place of Moog, is very different. Like, he's a very different flavor of goofy character who can get up to hijinks which um which 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 sort of undermine the seriousness of the situations. I also appreciate the fact that another key difference between Tam and Clay is not merely that Tam doesn't know Rose or the rest of the band intimately at the start of the story, and she has to discover who they are. She's also not in on the plan. Like there's very little that's kind of hidden from Clay throughout the book. He he's on board with most of other people's damage most of the time. The one exception to that, and which we didn't cover in our previous episode, is when he's talking to Ganelon and discovers that Ganelon, when he was locked in stone, was not asleep. He was Dr. Stoned. He was conscious the whole time, for like 19 years. It is like this silent hell, which was is a horrible discovery to make. There aren't many more moments like that in the first book. They tend to kind of... He kind of knows his friends well enough. In this book... We are defied knowing what's really going on inside Rose's head. It takes us a while to unpack that puzzle, to get to the bottom of what's going on with her. So Duncan, what is going on with Rose? What's this book about? Well, as I alluded to in my kind of opening statement, you could say that this is a book about a new upcoming band trying to carve out their niche in history. What it's more about, I would say, is a collective group of uh, slightly socially dysfunctional people trying to work through their own kind of personal issues um, at the same time mm-hmm. um, having to save the world. It's 99, baby. I think, I think that's the, the best summary, really. I think, really feel this is a bit where it was about taking each character in turn, you know, having that one-to-one time, mm-hmm. working through their own personal problems, like exploring, you know, why they're why they're hurting, um, and then mm-hmm. at the same time having this larger plot that plays off the first book of a real world-ending threat, um, which the first book didn't really have, mm-hmm. in at least not to the same way. The first book, the threat was very no, personal, it's, and while this book... The world will be changed, and this book is the world will be destroyed. It's the most direct kind of escalation you can get. There's even almost a joke about that, where the villain's like, I'm not trying to change the world, I want to destroy it. And I, I'm not going to lie, I actually even felt that there's a lot of emphasis near the end of this book between the main villain and Rose mm-hmm. about how it's personal. And to be fair, they do make it personal. Mm-hmm. I never actually felt it as personal as before. Like, I feel like Rose would have done the same actions, even if it hadn't been personal. I mean, I don't agree. Like, I literally think Rose is just callous enough to be like, well, that's not my fight. She, like, you know, she literally has to be persuaded to take part and then she doesn't, she doesn't really have en- enmity towards Astra until her dad is killed. 
that's the big spoiler. Um, they finally got him. They finally, it, it was the point I was like, he's not dead. Come on. And then he was. And I was like, oh, damn it. He finally got him. He finally got me. But yeah, like, no. Rose is callous enough in this book that until Gabe's dead, yeah, she doesn't care. I personally disagree. That was not my reading of the character. I felt like, although until Gabe's dead, it was not, you know, it wasn't personal. I still feel like Rose would have eventually have taken part in trying to defeat Astra without that of happening. I feel like she cares because she does. She cares about her bandmate. She cares about her child, and she cares about like making sure there's a world where these characters can be safe. No, that's the one bit she that she's gonna it's like it's someone else's problem. I okay. You know? I know there's literally a scene where she does say this. But I just, I yes. don't vibe that. My reading of this character was like, yeah, you're just saying that, but you would come round eventually, right? The point is not the practicalities of what it would take to make Rose get into the fight. The point is that it becomes this um, emotional struggle, this personal vendetta between her and Astra. But that's not what's most important, because Rose's arc doesn't really have anything to do with Astra. It's about her and her dad. I'm inclined to agree. Although I'm always inclined to say it's as much about her and her dad as it is about her and her son. And it's about her daughter coming to terms with her, the relationship she had with her parent and then how that's going to impact the relationship she has with her child or the relationship her child's going to have with her. And to kind of unpack this then, what we're really looking at is at the start of the book, we're presented with the story of a young woman who wants to get out of the shadow of her father. Her father is the great great golden gabe uh, the hero of the land who even at old age marched across half the world uh, to save her and break the siege in the last book and it's about her trying to one-up him you know take on the next big challenge but then it's also a story about her kind of realizing how much of an absentee dad he was and a bit shit and how they didn't get on so the thing you didn't hear me say was her daughter, not her son. Oh, fuck. Yes. Do you know what happened there? Sorry, can I just say that? Because I know it's her daughter. I know it's her daughter. But for some reason, the name Ren, I just think it was a bloke. So my brain was like falsely like turning it into a, into a son. I don't know why. Speaking of her daughter, and I'd like to get on to the core part of this book. And I mean, I want us to talk about Rose. I want to talk about her relationship with her daughter. I want to talk about Free Cloud. And the Druins in general, because we literally didn't mention them in a previous episode, which feels like a huge oversight. But first things first, I want to talk briefly on the character of Ren, which, and this is somewhat related. So I listened to this as an audiobook. I listened to Kings of the Wild as an audiobook. Um, I think maybe part of the reason why I had more fun with Kings of the Wild is I do think the narrator in Kings of the Wild did a better job than the narrator in, in Bloody Rose. Maybe this is just recency bias or whatever the opposite of recency bias, originality bias. I felt like it's a smart choice to change narrators. The new narrator, Catherine Fenton, who replaced Jeff Harding, uh, is, is a female actor. She and that makes sense. The main character is a woman. A huge portion of the main cast are women. And most importantly, she does a really good job for Red. Like, it is so sweet. She sounds absolutely adorable. The only issue is that um, when you have, when Clay Cooper shows back up, um, <laughs> Clay Cooper previously had this amazing, deep, bassy voice, and now he's like, 
you know, someone trying to do a deep bassy voice who can't quite do it. And most tragically of all, Moog's voice is nowhere near as funny. The first guy did such a good job with making Moog sound like this weirdo who was a lot of fun to hang out with, and now he just sounds like a wizard. Like, oh, yes, uh, and I was like, no, no, no. So that was disappointing. But, on to the topic of Ren and how adorable she is. Ren's very adorable. Duncan, thoughts? I didn't love Ren, and I was reading this book. What? And I just... Ren to me, and this is going to sound really mean, but I felt like Ren was just a function. I didn't love the child. It was like Ren was Rose's child, and I could see why Rose cared about their child deeply. Rose doesn't care about their child, but carry on. No, but Rose comes to care about their child. Eventually, yes. But the actual child themselves, I really felt like it was no more... Then, like, I felt towards um, Clay's child in the first book. They were... You didn't like Tally? Yeah, Tally. Oh, she was just doing cute to be cute to be endearing. It was almost too... Um... Oh, I feel really mean. But it was. It just felt a little bit too obvious to me. You're it's a... like, here's the child for you to feel fool. cute about. You're a damn fool, Duncan, and you're not cultured. Don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. No, uh, yeah, remember the... It's an object. It's an object that has defined characteristics in this story, but I did not have a personal emotional attachment to Ren at all. I see you felt differently. Yes, I liked I liked Ren a lot. She was adorable. I was like, why don't you want to spend time with this very sweet child? Free Cloud knows what's up. Let's talk about Free Cloud. We're moving on. Free Cloud is a druin, and druins are interesting. Firstly, they have yeah. bunny ears. Secondly, they're yeah. elves. <laughs> yeah. Bunny elves. The issue of the, the world that we're in is that long ago there was an evil empire ruled by the bunny-eared people, the Druin, who came to this world from their dying lands, crossed the voids, like we're talking, you know, interdimensional travel, and mm-hmm. set up an evil empire. But they were overthrown and torn down by the humans and the monsters working together. Druin are interesting because mm-hmm. they are long-lived. They all have a very slight sense of presense. They can see things a little Pretty bit before they happen. And unfortunately, they have a genetic trait, which I believe it's established has only come into existence when they came into art, like the world of the book, um, where they can only ever bear one child in their lifetime. The females can only bear a single child. Yes, but the males can go and sow oats as they like. Indeed. Rum Springer and all that. Yeah. And Free Cloud is surprisingly together out of the band. Yeah. Yeah, he's um Free Cloud's great. Um he is this stable as you say, he's this stable rock. He's the only person who doesn't have tremendous emotional baggage. Like he seems he should have daddy issues, but he seems to have them under control. Good for him. I do okay, I have this slight I do have a slight Wait, issue. Wait, is he Cloud. the only character in his book who doesn't have daddy issues? <laughs> I know what I love about it though is it says he has such justifiable daddy issues. And Indeed, it's like, like they're, they're, they're right there, right for the picking. And he's like, no thank you. I, will, I, I appreciate the offer of your daddy issues, but actually I've come to terms with it. Well, because he'll have time to come to terms with it. And Jordi, this kind of relates to a lot of fantasy where they have like elvenesh characters or long-lived species. Do you ever feel it's just sometimes you're like, you should be a little bit less, uh, a little bit less normal? For someone who's apparently seen the centuries. 
Mm. Like you're relating really well to these humans who, by your standards, were basically just born yesterday. Like, yeah, absolutely. It's not clear to me out through this book how old Free Cloud is supposed to be. I think his age is measured in centuries instead of millennium. I too got that vibe, but I think it's been left in yeah. purposely kind of ambiguous. Mm-hmm. And it does just strike me as a little odd. I, I'm not going to have this in Lord of the Rings as well. Whenever you get that human, elven, and mortal relationship, and you're just like, you were old when this person's grandchildren, like grandchildren, grandparents were around. Like, how do you two relate? I mean, they're all consenting adults. Let them be, Duncan. But then druids, like, when do druids become adults? Is it a proportion of their lifespan? Do they need to be in their thousands? At least a hundred? I think it's when their their, their ears go, go perk up. <laughs> I like, we have not made enough of the fact they have bunny ears. At first, when Last Leaf showed up in the first book, I was like, wait, what? Bunny ears? Seriously? And I genuinely was like, I don't know, man. This might this might break it for me. And the weirdest point ch- ch- turned this around for me, okay? Yeah, go on. The weirdest point. Um, it was when... Because I, I went through the whole book not really being sure about the whole bunny aesthetic. But in this book, when they meet Astra, and I found out that Astra had floppy ears, I was like, I'm down. <laughs> I like this. <laughs> I think that's really nice. I like the idea of just someone with floppy bunny ears. Oh, do you know what's so fantastic about that? Is that, like, I know we get told that, but I completely leave it out of my mental imaging throughout all the, like, final action scene. I'm not there picturing it with her, like, swinging the dark blade, raising her armies with these fluffy bunny ears. I love the bunny ears. What I also love about the bunny ears, and this is brilliant how it's very rarely explained, is part of Free Cloud's body language are his ears. Like, they essentially function the way that eyebrows might uh, for you and I. But sometimes, like, I think this is almost comedic genius. The author will just say he gestured with his ears. That, like, he gestured surprise of his ears. I'm like, what does that mean? He, I think he, he was in point, he was like, he gestured right with his ears. And he was just like, how? How did he do that? Did they bend at right angles? What's going on? It was fantastic. I'm just picturing that now. Do you think it's like, like, like the very tips of them kind of bend over and kind of point left and right? Like, you would give eye signals. Yeah, I think it's... <laughs> like, we're going to go that way, going Yeah, exactly. Way. Like, you would in a cartoon. They just, like, turn around, like, eyes focusing in different directions. <laughs> Is it established that they have, like, improved hearing? Yes, yes, they do. It's in this book. I find it really interesting with the Druin how they've kind of, like, come together with, like, human civilization and the levels of, like, aminosity. Because although they're... You so easily have them be, like, ostracised because they did build, like, the evil empire of old. But I kind of read how they sound like, yeah, we're kind of chill with them. Like, we're not chill with some of the other monsters. Oh, no, but, you know, they were evil, but they were civilised evil. Duncan, that's literally not true. What are you talking about? No? It's not true, dude. Free Cloud like, does not get attacked. Last Leaf was a pariah. Free Cloud is the exception to the rule. Yeah, all right then. Duncan, you basically just went, you know what's great about the Forgotten Realms book? It's great how Dritz is just accepted wherever he goes. Or the Drow are just accepted. They're not. <laughs> anyway, what else can I say about Druins before moving on to the rest of the book? I like their magic swords. I think their magic swords are cool. They have great names. Madrigal is a great name for a sword which sings like a bell. That's great. I really like the establishment of their old world, actually. And I think this is one of the areas that I'd love to see explored 
in further books in the series. I'd love to know. We've never told like the Druin like kind of. I think the impression is that they fled the homeworld, and it's like yeah, from who? Why? Yeah, and I think at the end of this book they're like it's Tanarak, and so maybe there are actually gods in this world. Uh, you ever get that sense of like when the author's like really ratcheting up the danger, and you're like, wow, that might literally be um impossible to beat like is a goddess of darkness coming in the next book is that how this is going to end because i don't think they can handle that to be honest i the escalation in this book over the first book i was very much i was so impressed by like the way that we get like how do you turn a giant horde of monsters into a bigger threat it's like a giant horde of undead monsters (laughs) it's a pity that I I was actually a little bummed out that they were like, there's another even bigger horde than last time. I was like, oh, come on. We already did that. Can we talk about the world building? Because I don't think you, you love world building as much as I do. No, I don't. You're right. To me, it's much more important to have interesting characters instead of just an interesting world. Well, okay. It's not that I disagree with you, but I still really do like some excellent world building. Sure. Okay. And this book, Over Kings of the Wild, I think really steps up in that field. So I want to talk about that. A particular aspect of world building I want to talk about is the monsters and the culture related to them and how they're treated in this world. Because you mentioned that as an aspect of the first book, you wanted to explore more. Mm-hmm. That's right. I think this is a theme which is explored way better in this book than it is in the previous one, which kind of paid lip service to it um, and was like gesturing in that direction, but ultimately didn't really deliver, in my opinion. So the way that the world of the band addresses monsters is that we are past the era of the wild creatures wandering around all the wilderness. You know, that's when bands were first brought into existence to tackle the, you know, yeah. the dire wolves dens and the horde of goblins in the forest. Now we're in an era where that's kind of all mm-hmm. been cleaned up, but bands must still exist. People still must have their glory. And so how do they go about it? They artificially create that glory. Instead of monsters being sought out in the wilderness, they are bred in captivity to die in arenas. Ooh. Yeah, sucks, bro. Like, and the great thing about this book is that the reason why Tam really works as a perspective character for this book is that Clay, when he encounters these arenas, he's like, this is stupid. In fact, I, I, just, I was just re-listening to Kings of Wild again, and... I got to the bit where he dis- discovers that this is happening. I'm on that chapter on my reread right now. And when he discovers that monsters are bred in captivity, he goes, that's dumb. That's his response. Because he's thinking about it from like, that's not how they did it back in my day. Whereas Tam is sort of figuring all this out for the first time. And her response is, this is immoral. This is wrong. She becomes increasingly jaded through this book about the industry of bands. About how, essentially, to put it in modern terms, how it's all a bunch of sellouts, you know? This book is starting to grapple with this idea a lot more. And I think that's probably going to be the absolute main thrust. Because it's now Brune and Roderick's mission, come the end of the book, to end this practice altogether. And I think the kind of three levels that I like to tackle this uh, bit of world building on. You've got Intex, which is these monsters, you know, they have feelings. They're not complete robots or agents of evil and they are being abused mm. used and 
riled up and yeah. subjected to these unpleasant conditions. And their anger is justified. Which I think is an, always a great aspect. Uh, the leader of the horde in this one, uh, Bruntide, is a large giant. And you really get the sense that, like, yeah, mm. he is the hero of his story. Like, 100%. Mm. Trying to liberate the fellow monsters. I And it's telling that whilst, you know, whilst Last Leaf, you could sort of say he has his reasons to, to hate humanity and to want to destroy us. It's telling that the villain in this one can't be in the same position. She can't be trying to follow through on her son's mission because uh, to do so, they wouldn't be able to fight her. You know, they wouldn't be, they would be like, she is right and we have to find some way to work with her. She can only serve as a villain if her goal is to destroy the world. If she doesn't care about monsters, if they're just tools to her. Now, I will just say, going back to the first book, there is that slight underpin, in, there is something that slightly underpins that, which is that, Lastly, says, I can't just let the people in Castia go. Like, the monsters need a victory mm-hmm. to bind them to me. So, you could sort of mm-hmm. argue, you know, that was still a bit of an outwear there move. You know, if he. J- oh, yeah, of course he's a fucking villain. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to make sure we're on the same page there. Lastly, was evil. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to be a Lastly apologist. Lastly did nothing wrong and all that. He's just looking out for the little guys, Geordie. What, why can't you see that? And then the other levels that I like this, I mentioned there were three. The other one is obviously the reader got from them being bands. You know, it's sort of the manufactured aspect mm-hmm. to the industry and the influence that actually, you know, that the bookers have and the people that run the venues have to sort of dictate what the mm-hmm. bands can do. Their, their ability to perform is more down to what the venue and the bookers kind of decree than their own kind of ability. And then there's one other aspect, and I don't want to touch on something too much of a political point here, but I I did actually quite enjoy uh, taking a reading away from this as sort of a reflection on our own industries, not just something like blood sports, obviously you could quite easily read across, but just sort of the meat industry in general. Oh, I see. If you accept that these creatures, you know, are, you know, they're not just monsters, you know, they have feelings, sensations, Uh, there's a very poignant scene about one monster that has its sort of cubs and offspring mm. and the impact that has. And you, I really did enjoy kind of taking a reading of like, well, yeah, if you look at the modern meat industry and like, you know, the influence we have on a lot of the kind of cattle creatures mm. that we have, if you view them with also having sensations and feelings and they can feel pain too, you go, yeah, it's also kind of dark. You know, Duncan, that's, I, I don't think that's necessary. That is an interesting take. And actually, I think like you have actually really improved my reading of, this book because i think that's a really appropriate sort of allegory to go with because my most my the first place my head goes for obvious reasons is i think about the slave trade you know it's sentient beings being bred for a purpose for them to be used for utility which is one of the greatest evils mankind has ever done but i think the other side of that is that the book has to walk this difficult line between the fact that it says there are monsters and there are monsters You know, there are things out there which are dangerous and which do have to be confronted, which is not a good analogue for something like slavery, because there is no example of where you're like, oh, that was a justified bit of slavery. Whereas you could say in this book, that bit of monster slaying was justified. They presented a serious threat. But if you're going down this avenue of examining it in a way that we might talk about the modern meat industry, you could say 
there is a serious ethical difference between herding animals into a factory to be slaughtered and the difference between taking a bow yourself, going out into the woods and hunting something. You could, you could theoretically, yes. you could be someone who refuses to buy mince off your, um, off your supermarket shelf but still eat venison, which you've hunted for yourself because you know that it was ethically sourced and killed. Do you know how much I was terrified to dance around that kind of political statement? So I was like, yeah, I want to say this, but I'm so afraid when I go into this zone. But though, thank you for summarising it. Speaking as someone who had a steak today, the modern meat industry is fucking evil. And for someone that hasn't eaten meat now for nearly four years, um, it is also very evil. Uh-huh. Wagging my finger. The funny enough, the thing that really educated me about the meat industry was not like any of the propaganda videos, uh, which like people put out. It was uh, it was an episode of the Magnus Archives, uh, a horror anthology podcast where the guy was writing just a horror story, but he did a lot of research into the modern meat industry. Like it was took place in an abattoir, and I was like, "Whoa, this is fucked up. This is this is not okay." It is a very complicated issue and I think there's so many kind of uh, approaches you can have. And I think, you know, you've got that approach where like this is in context, this being back to bloody race, oh, killing monsters is wrong or killing any sentient creature is wrong. Uh, But then you can kind of set the back like, well, you know, we live in a society where sometimes there is a necessity there. But if you're going to do it, Mm -hmm. why not do it with some rules of honorability or within a certain scale? Or even just don't... Like a Geneva Convention. Excellent kind of example, yeah. Like, we, we recognise that there's yeah, a like need we for have war, rules for warfare. But there can still be rules. I imagine, I hope that's explored in the next book. I will say, one of the places, and there are a couple of places where this book falls down in ways I felt like Kings of the Wild didn't fall down. And that is the delivery of that thing about humans and monsters working together. The conclusion... In the final battle of this book, the big scene of we have to work together with the monsters to, to defeat these guys is they they go to these like these prisoners, these locked up cells in like this monster market, and Rose gives this dramatic speech, this dramatic speech to inspire the troops to get them to fight alongside them. And it directly parallels the big speech Gabe at the end Gabe gave at the end of the previous book. And there's an issue here, which is that Gabe gave a really good speech. Like a, I'm clenching my fist and like trying not to pump the air on the bus good speech. Like, so hyped up. The speech, in my opinion, wasn't that good. I don't think people will be persuaded by it. And the problem is, is the way these monsters are persuaded to fight is not, we have to do this. We have to work together for all our sake. It's, you have to fight with us. Because if you don't, we'll kill you. You will literally have learned nothing. You're supposed to, at this point of the story, be like, we've realized that our, our industry of corralling these creatures to make them fight for our entertainment is bad. So let's corral these creatures and make them fight for our survival. That's definitely different. Oh, and if you don't do it, we'll kill you. Stepping stones, mate. Stepping stones. The next book, the POV will be a monster. Maybe. Who knows? You know what? There probably will be. That's a good... I Maybe that's right. Um, so I've also, I said I said there were three layers to the monster allegory. Obviously, the fourth layer is its Pokemon. 
and he is deeply condemning that universe and its barbaric promotional <laughs> practices. Remember that one game where Pokemon was like, you know what, maybe this is bad. And then you beat the guy who told you that and you keep playing the other games and no one ever talks about it again. I actually am completely unaware, but yes, that. Um, yep. I agree with In you. Black and white, the, hit, the enemy was called, I think it was either Near or N. It was N. Near is from Death Note, I think. But N is like, don't make Pokemon fight each other. It's bad. He And he like he replaces Team Rocket or whatever in that game. And plus, the interesting thing about it, because he's like against capturing Pokemon and making them fight, every time you fight him, he has a different team. Like he, he released his previous ones from the last time you fought him, which is a, which is a neat gimmick. As someone who's not played Pokemon, I'm just going to agree with you there. Uh, going back to Rose's speech, Great. though. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm also on the same boat as this. It, the ending of this book while i enjoyed the the very the very very end so the epilogue of this book the sort of epic yep. climax didn't land as strongly as the first book by quite a margin like the final battle of kings of the wild is so epic it actually kind of frustrates me Short and sweet. that i've read bigger brackets here you know air quotes sorry air quotes here epic fantasies that don't have mm-hmm. as epic an ending. I'm like, this is only one book. This is the battle to close yep. off a 10-book series and not be disappointed. I, I think the reason for that is that it's short and sweet. It's over in, like, a chapter and a half. You know, you start with the Battle of the Bands where he rallies the troops, everyone charges in. I think the next chapter is just the battle. Um, Gabe and Rose are reunited. And it's over. The book ends. And I think that's like, it's so, it's a, it's like a runaway train. It's just barreling, barreling, barreling towards the end. And then boom, big explosion and it's done. I think the fact that this battle, like the lead up to the battle is sort of at the halfway point. That's when they say, we are now going to be going into this fight. The equivalent, like the scene where Moog kills the dragon is the scene where these guys kill the dragon eater, you know? It's this last thing right before the big confrontation with the main enemy. But that's the, like, fourth last chapter. And in this book, that's, like, the halfway point. That's when the plot really gets started. That's, like, a pacing thing. You know, like, the main battle wasn't the point of that book. The main point was getting Rose back. This book, the main battle is kind of a point. It's much bigger and more dramatic and it serves that end well. The battle is really, really well written. Like, it's longer. It takes place over more stages. There's, like, strategy going on, which you can follow quite easily. There's these dramatic beats to it. Um, And it maybe just comes down to a question of taste. Do you know what? That probably summarises a lot of this book. Like I said, they both do so well. It is, and it's not that one balances drama and comedy better to the other. They're just in different proportions. I think the thing this book does, which really, it might be the most poignant and best part of the entire series thus far. I've said I prefer Kings of the Wild. I love this book. I think the thing, the best part of this whole series so far is the character of Kuro. Maybe I just connect way too strongly to Tam being interesting, Kuro, because I said earlier... Um, I kind of feel like I resonate with this sort of relationship where you're like really trying to be there emotionally for someone else. 
So the fact that Kura's big contribution to the climax, and much like the big battle at the end of the first book, it's this one pivotal moment, and then she's out of action. She can't be there anymore because she's like used up all her power. I like that. I really like the fact that it's this one big move and she's done. The moment where she achieves emotional catharsis, where she lets go of her damage, literally presented by the fact of her letting go of her scars and her tattoos, which represent various fears, and using them to destroy the most powerful monster on the field of battle. Um, fucking nailed it. Just like so good. Um, no notes. Right. Good job. For those of you who have not read the book or need a refresher, Kura is an ink witch. And she has this amazingly described... You know what? Don't don't explain it. Literally just don't explain it. You should read the book. You should, but I just want to talk about how much I love the, the sheer concept of her magic, which is that she basically okay, tattoos enough. herself and then can summon forth the creatures of her tattoos to fight for her. She's a stand user. Explain your terms. It's a JoJo thing. You summon, like, a spirit who represents your soul to fight next to you. Well then, good for them. But, you know, this was really nice, and I loved her relationship with Tam. I felt there's something that was missing in the first book, obviously, because Ginny, Ginny was at home. Had to get back to his love. I like the fact that Tam... It's not even like they're set up like, oh, they're going to be, like, the thing. I like it. It's very much that they're trying to, they're trying to suss each other out. They're trying to explore. Could we be a thing? Should we be a thing? Mm. I think I really enjoyed that. I agree. I think that's really strong. Uh, I really liked also Tam's... Yeah, and it's also not obvious right from the first that they are going to get together. Like, that is something that you sort of, over time, you're like, yeah, I can I can kind of see this working. Yeah, oh, okay, yeah, you're starting to hint towards it being there. Like, a nice slow burn. I think that's really well done. I really like the aspect of the... I really felt that Tam, and I don't know how much was this actually on the page, and not just me sort of putting my impressions onto the character... But I really like this. The I got a vibe of, oh, oh, she's you know, you know, she's broken. Oh, I should be there. I can fix her. And then a little bit like, yeah, but should should I get involved? Like, is that my place? I like the feel that there was that kind of a second moment. Duncan, you <sighs> no, didn't get that reading. Um, how should I put this? I don't know what to say. I feel like I'm showing way too much of my emotional heart by by answering this question. Um, I don't think it comes down to a matter of choice. (laughs) Tam's gonna do what Tam's gonna do. Yes, you're right. Tam's gonna do who Tam's gonna do. (laughs) Duncan. Oh. So let's 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 hit some more points. So something that is quite different in Bloody Rose compared to Kings of the Wild is that in Kings of the Wild. Everyone comes through alive. All the people we care about and enjoy make it. That wasn't the case and in this book. And because it was the case in the previous, it really took me by surprise. How about you? Oh yeah, for sure. Like I already mentioned that I did not believe that Gabe was dead when he was dead. Like Gabe had pulled through enough stuff that should have killed him that I kind of knew, all right... This guy, this writer, he's got, he's, he's too nice. He doesn't, he doesn't have the heart to kill any of these characters. Yeah, what a big pushover. And then he fucking died, which was a bummer. It sucks to lose Gabe. Do you feel it was necessary? Yes. I think it was necessary to propel 
rose to fall over the rest of a path she did, where she can never now, like, she can never surpass her father, because for one thing, when, when Gabe dies, a thousand people come to pay homage, and when Rose, in the version commas, dies, that doesn't happen. Like, Rose becomes this subject of legend. Did Rose really die? Is, like, this question at the end. But she ha she lets go of ever trying to surpass her father. She says, I'm not going to worry about it anymore. That's sort of her emotional arc. To accept that seeking glory isn't what she's about anymore. She has more important things to care about. So for that reason, losing Gabe, I feel like, yeah, that's an important part of the story. Kind of had to happen. Still hurt, though. Like, yeah, still this hurt. really hurt. And not only was it Gabe's death, it, in many respects, actually, it wasn't the impact on... Because our POV captain, this Tam, she doesn't have that much of a connection to Gabe. She just knows Gabe as the figure. Nope. You know, the golden Gabe. It's the descriptions we get externally, looking at both Rose and at Clay. Clay, who is the yeah, heart of the literally... first book. Mm -hmm. to and i really it always pained me it almost annoyed me okay i'll be honest it almost annoyed me a bit because i really wanted if gabe to die to have a pov be clay when that happened and a small part of me feels a little cheated because i wanted his internal pain <laughs> so bad. <laughs> you fucking sadist um but the fact that it's the quiet pain and you don't know exactly what's going through his mind was very effective and I think also, yep. once again, to see Moo also have to deal with mm. grief again was just yeah. so effective. God. It, and Moo and is the most emotional part of the thing. Like, maybe Maddie would also be a complete mess uh, if he was present to see, he, see and hear about Gabe's death in the immediacy. Maybe he'd have a similar reaction. But Moog is the one who can be the most open and, and sad and, and, and weepy. Weep, openly weeping. And Clay, as the strong rock, has to like be there for everyone else whilst simmering under the surface. A, a note about the fact that Clay is a, is a character we only see the outside of. I like the fact that Tam has no ability to read Clay. She can barely understand what he's thinking. And the fact that there's almost dramatic irony that we, as people who have been inside Clay's head, we almost always know, oh, I know what Clay's thinking right now. I know him so well and so intimately that I don't need his, his perspective here because I already know what it is. And I love the fact that this is exemplified by the fact that she almost only calls him slow hand. Yes. When it's, it's slow hand does this, slow hand does that. She just uses the slogan. And that's that's such a good choice. That's really that is. I think that's really brilliant. It's that internal consistency that I really think Ian's nails so much. And you are right. We don't get to see his pain internally. But at no point could I like if I had to guess. You know, if I had to feel what he must be feeling when he's doing when all we see outside externally is the stoicism. You're like, yeah, I I get it. I've been in his head when he thought he's lost people before, mm. and you kind of can replay those emotions. Um, yeah, a great bit when she goes, um, and she goes, slow hand, he killed Gabe. And he go, just goes, did he now? And I'm like, oh, yes, that is great. Because in that moment, I don't, like I said, I don't need narration. I know Clay well enough that everything that narration would tell me, 
It's right there in front of me. Oh, I know. I wish we could have gone that fight in more detail. That that okay. Some can I just actually hit off a few other epic lines no, about I slow like hand this, in this? I like the fact that fight doesn't. It's so good. Like it's literally she's not looking at the fight. She's staring out the window, and a fight is happening behind her. So we only get like clay. We hear the sound of like the sound of something smashing. We just see clay threw a guy across a table. No more details than that. She's focusing on other stuff. And there's this funny gag where Clay is trying to finish a sentence and he keeps getting hit by furniture in between. They say, like, you just focus on smash. You just focus on smash. You just smash, son of a... And he just, like, forgets what he was saying. There's a great uh, joke earlier on about Slowhand as well. Um, he's not in the scene, mm-hmm. but it's the scene when Gabe comes to pick up Rose. And she's like, mm-hmm. wait... What have you done with Ren? Where's my daughter? Like, there's a massive horde coming, and how dare you? Mm-hmm. Why how, aren't you looking after them? And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I left her with um, Clay Cooper. And she's like, oh, in that case, they're fine. Like, <laughs> every is like, yeah, safest place on the planet. That man's in. Oh. They're going to kill Clay. <sighs> it, I really, you know what? I really don't want Clay to be in the next book, because he's made it through this, and I'm like, just let him alone. Leave him be. Let him have his horses, you know? He is the last kind of... He represents so much of the, the safety. You're like, yeah, well, if Clay's there, no, no one can be harmed. So I think that would have to be the move. No, but that's not true anymore. We already lost Gabe. <laughs> I was already worried about losing Clay before. Anyway, the point being, leave him alone. He's fine. I, I want that. I want when the next yeah. book starts to it be like... Clay to have like just died peacefully in his sleep. Like, give us a 20-year jump and let him just yeah. die peacefully. Unfortunately, I think Tally might be one of the main characters of the next book. Because she does kind of become an adventure at the end of this one. And I'm like, oh man, I'm worried. I'm really worried about this. What would be more painful? If Clay dies? Or if Tally? Uh, Clay. Yeah, there. Fence with the POV. He's the perspective character. He's the one whose head we're in. I don't know why. I really, the pain is done so well in this book that I kind of enjoy it. It's. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's that's what part of that's part of what works. Well, that's what part of what fantasy is all about. It's about experiencing um, hard emotions that would be really difficult to deal with in our own personal lives. That's the reason why we listen to sad songs. Sad songs like "Every Rose Has Its Thorn." Oh, I'm sorry, you're making a reference to something, but. I just can't work yeah, out. Yeah, man, it's literally one of the central jokes of this book. Rose has a sword called Thorn. No? Don't worry, I got every that one. Rose has its thorns, just like every night has its dawn. Oh, that's us time for copyright. No, it's not. Shut up. You don't know what that word means. Okay, I really just want to say how much that I enjoy this book, and I hope this is that's come across. Yep. Uh, wow, Duncan, I think it's time for our final conclusions. How do you feel about this book? I really like this book, and I think this book does, in many respect, I think this is actually a better, more emotionally resident, resonant. No, I think this is a better, more emotionally resonant story, and I know I just throw the word better out there. I think it is better because I found it more emotionally resonant than I found the first one. Despite mm. the fact the first one is undeniably a more fun, active adventure that I would recommend almost more than this one. In fact, I, I do recommend it more because I would recommend that book and then obviously see you read this one. This book, I think, in many respects, 
although individual characters maybe fell a bit short, like Brune is not sticking with me. Um, I feel like I like Brune as a guy. Like he's a fun side character. He has a lot of fun jokes. The fact that his emotion catharsis, unlike Rose and Tam and Kura, doesn't play into the really important parts of the book, but is displayed much earlier, is a weak point for him. There, I made a point way more succinctly than I did earlier. Congratulations. But I think the bits that really matter, the character of Rose, her relationship with Gabe, and the story of Tam as our POV and her exploring the world and exploring herself and getting to know this group of dysfunctional characters, I found more satisfying than I did in Kings of the Wild. I think I have made myself quite clear. Um, I think on the whole, I prefer Kings of the Wild. I think it's a more complete package. I think it's, as we've both agreed, it's more fun than as opposed to being more emotionally resonant. The emotions which this book sets out to resonate with, yes, they do resonate. Mission success just really comes down to personal opinion. I don't think this book is as neat as the first one, but it's still really excellent. Uh, It definitely scores really high among the books that we read this year. Because we are coming up to the end of the year now, Duncan. Oh, I know. Oh, this is so exciting. I think we got one episode, one book left in the tank for this this year, and then that's it. And it's my pick, Geordie. I'm so excited for this. Wow, I literally stumbled into the end of the episode. I didn't mean to do that. Duncan, I think I finally figured out how to podcast. Good, at least that's one of us. So, we're coming to the end of the year. Yeah. We're coming to the end of the year. Yeah. And it is the festive season. Yeah. So, Duncan and I had an agreement before. We decided that in October, we'd do a spooky month. And I said, should we do something for, like, winter and Christmas as well? And we both went, well, there aren't, like, Christmas fantasy novels. Like, there are holiday fantasy novels. So, we can't do that. So, yeah. Don't expect us to do a Christmas special. Anyway, back to you, Duncan. No, don't expect a Christmas special every year. But this year, I do have what I consider to be the yes. one, the yeah, only... There is one Christmas fantasy novel, and we're going to shoot our shot. Written by what who I consider to be the finest fantasy author of all time, by Sir Terry Pratchett himself. In a fortnight's time, we will be reading Hogfather. Wow, you really skipped my chance to make a... Well, you already did both of Nicholas Eames' books. But yeah. Uh, yeah, Sir Terry. I mean, I think it's a nice one to close out. It's a short, highly comedic one. Uh, but we're still... And a also, bit of emotional resonance in there. We haven't done a Discworld novel yet. Have we not? No. You're absolutely right. We read a joint work. <laughs> way back when. Exactly, we did Good Omens, but we have not done a Discworld novel yet. My, my, my. Well, everyone, if you're yeah. excited for this, if you're a fan of Discworld, then do write in and tell us your opinions on The Hogfather. And if you're a fan of Nicholas Ian's work, and if you've read it, I'm sure you are. If you haven't read it, go read it, become a fan, and then tell us what you think. You can reach out to us as is this just fantasy yeah. podcast at gmail.com or on our Instagram, yeah, yeah, is yeah. this just fantasy podcast. And now to play us out, Duncan, you will sing the rest of Every Rose Has Its Thorns. Off to you. There's a rose with a thorn. That's the best I know. Beautiful. Poison would be proud. Goodbye for me, everyone. Keep on rocking. Bye-bye.